there's no other way. There's no other path. There's no other light. There's no other religion. There's no other works-based salvation system that will actually save you. It's only through Christ. Christian, I pray that you'll believe more. That God may grow you and encourage you and strengthen you to continue to read his word and to pray, to fellowship, to engage others with the glorious truths that you are growing and you are learning in. Why? Because that's what it is to be a Christian. I want to encourage you as a Christian to grow in your, in your love of him and to seek him. To ask questions if you need clarification. Find someone who is, who is older in the faith than you, who is more wise in the faith than you, and ask questions. Write them down. Ask your pastor, ask a deacon, ask a deaconess. Ask someone because if this is the most important thing that we could ever possibly get a hold of, we should want understanding of it. Okay, I'm turning to Genesis chapter 3. This is verse 15. And this is God speaking to the serpent speaking to Satan in the Garden of Eden just after the fall. And I will put enmity, or I will put a war between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now in, in Latin, that would be what's known as the Proto-Evangelion, so the first gospel account that we have in the entire Bible is actually found in Genesis chapter 3. So in the midst of God cursing Adam and Eve, he also provides this glorious truth that if we read it again, he shall bruise you on the, he on the head, that would be Jesus, and you shall bruise him on the heel, that would be Satan. So we see the first gospel promise there, and as I look at this tree, what it kind of makes me think of, and, and we talked about this a little bit at Wednesday night Bible study, if you will think about that in Genesis chapter 3 as an acorn, all right, an acorn, or a, or a little seed of a tree, and there we see that first glimmer of Christ, and then let's, let's flash forward just a second, let's say Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham, uh, Mount Moriah, if I'm not mistaken. Abraham's on the top of the mountain. He has Isaac with him, and Isaac says, where's, where's the lamb to be slaughtered? He didn't bring one up. And so he binds his only true son and lays him on an altar. And right before the flint knife comes down, what does he see caught in the thicket? He sees a ram caught in the thicket. God stays his hand. God does not allow Abraham to slaughter his son. And God, listen here, graciously provides a substitute. Now theologically, when we look at the death of Jesus Christ and what God did, we would, we would say that that is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal and that the, the wrath, the justice, the righteousness of God was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ substitutionary, he died in the place of sinners, in atonement, that he appeased that wrath of God, that he satisfied the justice due. There's another little picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So we go from acorn in Genesis chapter 3 to a little sprig, a little thing coming out of the ground with, with, uh, with Abraham and Isaac, and then we go on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. We continuously see these glimmers and pictures of Jesus Christ until we get to the New Testament. We see this full-blooming oak tree. 
of Christ himself. And we get the fullness of the picture of what the Old Testament sacrificial system was actually all about. Jesus. We get a, a better comprehension on what the tabernacle and what the temple, all right, and, 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 and what the kings of Israel should have been. And we see the imagery of Christ in uh, the kingdom of David, for example. Look, look at the parallels here. David, <laughs> this is awesome. His occupation was a shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. All right, David from the house of Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. Jesus from the house of Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. All right, David, prophet, because he predicted the suffering of the Messiah in the book of Psalms. Jesus, prophet. All right, David, at one point interceding on behalf of his people. That's what's called being a priest. Jesus interceding on behalf of his people, priest. David, king of Israel. Jesus, true king of Israel. And so we see these glimmers and these pictures, not that those people were Christ. Understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. Not that those people were Christ, but that they, 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 they were glimmers and pictures of ultimately the true Messiah, the true Savior of the nation of Israel in the world. And so I don't know why that tree just spurred that up in me. I want us to constantly be a people when we read the Old Testament to see the pictures of Christ. Why? Because on the road to Emmaus in the latter part of the book of Luke, Right? Jesus walked that seven or eight miles, the distance that they were walking, and he hit from the law and the prophets. So that would summarize basically the entire Hebrew Old Testament. All the things concerning himself. That's a direct quote. So the entire Old Testament, when we read it, is actually about Christ. And if we dig deep enough, even into the genealogies, I can assure you we will find Christ. So think about that as the backdrop for the book of John. If you will, please turn with me to John 1, verse 1. And please bow with me. Lord, as we prepare to enter your word and to talk about Christ, Help us to focus on Christ. Help us to understand, God, how beautiful the incarnation was. How wonderful it was that you condescended, that you lowered yourself willfully and manifested yourself fully God and fully man in Christ Jesus. That is beyond me. Yet I am so thankful. And God, I pray that as we look to work through this entire book, God, that this would be a time of growth for this church spiritually. Lord, this would be a time of growth for us in our families, in our personal lives. Lord, that we would constantly look to you for better understanding of the Christ and that our life would be bent after the pursuit of Christ and that our minds would be captivated by the things of Christ. That as my prayer for this section, Lord, empty me, God, let your spirit move in a mighty way and amongst this people and among, amongst this town. God, and draw people by your spirit. Father, it's in your name we pray in accordance with your will we ask. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
And I know that it seems like that might be a, a very short section there uh, to, to talk through, to talk over for a sermon, but I can assure you that if we actually look at the meat of that text and the underlying theological principles the meat of that text. We could spend probably a year just trying to wrap our heads around that and fail miserably by God's standards. However, my hope and my prayer is that we'll have a basic understanding of this, an elementary understanding of this, because here's the joy. Here's, here's one of the amazing things. I can guarantee this, that when we punch into heaven, whenever that may be, we will spend an eternity after an eternity after an eternity chasing down the truth of these two verses right here, and we will not get to the end of it. But why not get a start right now? Why not try and get our hands around the foothill of the mountain of God and enjoy what He's put before us? So, uh, before we can properly understand Christ, if we're going to understand the gospel, if we're going to understand uh, what it is to be a Christian, we must understand this the eternal nature of Christ. And the eternal nature of Christ is put on display in these two verses. And you see, many have attempted to lessen, to remove, or to alter, or altogether to ignore the deity and the glorious truth that Christ was and is, and let me say that again, was and is God. Period. They did some really funky things in the, in the second and third century. Uh, some people thought that Jesus was a hologram. Uh, some people thought that he was an alien. Uh, and some people thought that he was just a, a mystic, kind of like a magician, if you will. And so a lot of these false views on the deity of Christ were put to bed at the first uh, council of Nicaea. Uh, we could talk about the, the Christological statements, the statements of uh, Christ actually being God that emanated out of that at a later time. But if you want to look historically, look at the first and second councils of Nicaea and see what they said about the deity of Jesus Christ. If we begin, if we begin with the assertion that when we look at the, 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 the word there, all right, that word, word, now in the NASB, uh, and I know in a few other translations, uh, that word, quote, word, is capitalized because it, it, it refers to the proper deity of Jesus Christ, right, himself being God. If we begin with the assertion that the word, or the logos in the Greek, was from the beginning, and then we end our study there, we have the tendency to walk ourselves into a trap. And here's the trap. If I just say, in the beginning was the Word, okay, if I was an atheist and I stepped away from this text and I just read the first portion, what I would immediately do is try and argue the fact that Jesus actually had a beginning. Now think about that. When we think about the Trinity, all right, so our, our, our Trinitarian studies, if we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If one of those did not exist at a certain point, then they would not be infinite, which means that they would not be God. And so if we can try and twist and manipulate the text, excuse me, if we can try and twist and manipulate that into being something that removes the infinite nature of Christ, then we've just separated Christ from the Godhead. Do you see how dangerous that road is? And that can lead us to some really weird outcomes, some very strange things. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and again, and again, and again. True logic, true logic will always intersect with biblical truth. 
doesn't matter how you slice the coin. True logic will always intersect with biblical truth. Why? Because Aristotle did not create logic. God created logic. And if we don't abuse that system, we don't twist it and manipulate it, it will always intersect with biblical truth. As we continue to refute that position that maybe Christ had this weird beginning, all right, we see that the Christ was both with God and was God. So that right there immediately puts any one of those arguments that Christ had some type of literal beginning in terms of our understanding of linear time. What, what we're doing here, and we'll draw this from a number of verses here in a minute, what John is basically doing here is not allowing us to think that Christ just popped into human history at some point. That he was from the beginning of the foundations of the world. It doesn't mean that he was created at the foundations of the world. It means that he was present at the foundation of the world. So we'll talk about some of those verses in just a second. If we want to define uh, Orthodox Trinitarianism, which is just a fancy, nerdy way of saying the biblical view of the Trinity. So if we want to look at the biblical view of the Trinity, I'd like to default uh, right now to the 1689 uh, London Confession of Faith. Quote, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. And so what naturally springs out of that is we understand that the Father is God, as the Holy Spirit is God, as the Word, or Christ, is God. Yet they're distinct in how they operate, yet they are one God. In short, these three are one. The Father, the Son of the Word, and the Spirit. Oh, Paul tells us in his letter to the church at Colossae, in Colossians 1.17, He, Jesus, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now you see, Christ is before all things and all things that exist that are in physical space and time and in the spiritual dimension, right, they are sustained and upheld by Christ himself. He is God. Christ is God. John further sharpens this reality in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Hmm. So he is also, in the beginning of this epistle, defaulting back to the beginning of creation. Let's look in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So now just using human logic, when we go back to, uh, you don't have to switch back to the verse, but when we go back to Colossians, basically what he was saying there is that if everything's upheld by Christ, if everything was created through Christ, and Genesis 1.1 just told us that God created the heavens and the earth, and if we know that Christ indeed is God, then we can articulate the true fact that Christ created the world. That's just biblical truth. Uh, it says also somewhere else in the Bible, um, everything was made through him, and nothing that was made was not made by him. I think that's a, a, a pretty bad personal translation there. All right, I botched that verse hard, but the, the principle's the same. Nothing that exists came into its existence without the word of Christ, without being spoken into existence by him. 
So we must begin our understanding of the Christ as being God himself. And again, this is the primary thrust of the book of John. This is what we're after. This is what we're trying to find. It's the overarching theme, the glorious truth, the saving truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's above all things. He created all things. And he, Christ, is the eternal truth of God. Let me say that again. Christ is the eternal truth of God. Now I'm going to test you guys. Christ is the eternal truth. That was pathetic. Christ is the eternal, thank you, heard some people there, the eternal truth of God. John 18, 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king, for I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. To testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I want to explain something incredibly important to all of you. The truth of God is manifested in the person, in the work of Christ. There's absolutely no other way you'll spend the first minute with God basking in His glory and in His beauty and in His wonder apart from Christ. No way whatsoever, in any way. There is no hope and no way and no truth apart from him. Why can I argue that? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, and him would be Thomas in this sense. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Leave that verse up there for just a second. Remember how I just talked about logic and the fact that uh, if, if, if we utilize true logic, it will intersect with biblical truth. Allow me to explain something. True logic works conversely. What do I mean by that? If I take this, if Jesus is citing an undeniable truth that has an opposite and equal form, if I negate this, it still works. So if I, if I turn this whole statement into a negative, let's watch this. Jesus said to him, I am the way. If you do not come to me, you will go the wrong way. And you will believe a lie and you will have death. No one comes to the Father but through me. See how that works logically? That painted the whole Bible picture there. If you do not enter through Christ, there is no way you will believe the lie and you will die. That's pretty much the sum total of the Bible there in a negative aspect. Yet Jesus has stated it here positively. And so, let's go on. Uh, John 5, verses uh, 39 through 40. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he's speaking to the Pharisees here. It is these that testify about me, about Christ. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So what has Jesus just said here? Leave that up there. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Let's use our negative logic again. If you are willing to come to me, you will have life. You see how this whole logic train works? Positive, negative, positive, negative. We can flip it around however we want. If it's true logic, it will intersect with the Bible. It will be a biblical truth. Romans 5, 8 through 9. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Leave it up there. 
if we have not been justified by the blood of Christ, we will not be saved by the wrath of God through Christ Jesus. You see, see, see what we're doing here when we interact with the biblical text. If we try and punch into heaven, let's say on my own merit, let's say J. John uh, bakes a bunch of cookies. He, okay, let's say J. John has never known Christ. Uh, he grew up in South Central Los Angeles to, uh, I don't know, a Buddhist mother. I'm, I'm stealing Vadi Bakum's story. Okay, if anyone knows who Vagi Bakum is. And I baked a lot of cookies in my day. And I was the best cookie baker on the planet. And I took cookies and I gave them out to everybody. And everybody thought I was the nicest person on the planet. If I do not have Christ, I will not be saved from the wrath of God. His blood will mean nothing to me. I will not enter heaven. I will die in my sin. If by the world standard I am the nicest person, if I'm Gandhi, if I'm Mother Teresa, by the world standards I'm the nicest dude on the planet. If I don't have Christ, I will not be saved from God. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Listen, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I don't need to to do the positive negative because he's already done it here. He who has the Son has life. If you have the Christ, if you have the Word, if you have the Son of God, you have life. If you do not have Jesus Christ, if you do not have the divine Word, the Logos, If you do not have Jesus, you do not have life. This is painting it black and white. And John, we will see as we continue over and over and over again in John, he does this. He'll contrast things like light and dark, life and death. The right way, the wrong way. Watch the contrast that he uses. And he uses those for very specific reasons that we will see there's no middle road. There's no option C or Avenue 3. It's A or it's B. I didn't mean to rhyme that, but that sounded like Dr. Seuss for a moment there. And, and there's a cross right there. That's awesome because that's Jesus. Good imagery right there. Think about how hard it is to see that cross. It's a little difficult to see that cross. But if that whole background was pitch black and somebody showed a light onto the front of that cross, the only thing that you would see is the cross. This is what the world wants to do to you right here. It wants to wow you with the glimmery things in the background and have the reality of Christ and the cross fade out of view and seem dim, dark, and unappealing. That's society. But if we blacked out everything behind it and we shone a light on the cross, that's the gospel. As we look at the reality of that verse that we just talked about in 1 John 5, 11, and 12, um, I can't begin to tell you how important the reality of these truths actually are. Christian, the only reason that you have hope is because of what Christ has done for you and what Christ has actually done in you. You will not enter heaven on your own merit or your own perceived goodness or how many cookies you bake or how many people you help across the street. No prayers to false gods, to angels, or to men will be heard. 
Let me, let me just biblically uh, assert that for a second. When we look at Luke chapter 16, this isn't even in the text. When we look at Luke 16, for example, uh, the story of rich man, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, not the Lazarus who Jesus uh, brought back from life, different Lazarus, okay? When uh, the rich man dies, it says he opens up his eyes, he looks up, he's in torment and in great flame in hell. There's a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell, and he looks up and he sees Abraham, and instead of praying to God, he prays to Abraham. He says, Abraham, if you will, send, uh, send somebody who will tell my brothers about how terrible this place is. He says, nope, they've got the Old Testament. They have the law and the prophets. He says, well, could you at least send somebody to, 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 to drop a piece of water on my tongue because I'm in great torment in these flames? says, nope, sorry, there's a great gulf fixed between the two. I can't come down to you. You can't come up to us. So even in hell, the guy who was unloving and uncaring and didn't care about God to begin with, even in hell, his theology is flawed because he did not cry out to God in hell. He cried out to Abraham. That's the only example in the entire Bible that we have of someone praying to another human being. And that guy had some pretty messed up theology. Think about that for a second. No system, no steps will be grounds for your right standing with God. You will only enter into heaven on the righteousness of another. Let me say that again. You will only enter heaven on the righteousness of another. Who's that? Christ. Christ Jesus. Now this is a a tenet or a hallmark of our faith, and this must be known and proclaimed and defended Now, we as Christians should hear this truth. Listen, we should hear this truth. As Christians, we should hear this truth and we should rejoice, but we should also shudder. Do you not see that the dead and the dying spiritually are all around you? Do you understand that no other religious system will provide salvation? What should this truth do is it rattles the insides of our hearts as it spurs our thoughts, our minds, our emotions, our, 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 our understanding of what it is to actually be outwardly loving to another person. What does this do when we consider these truths? It should push us forward into the advancement of the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel of Christ Jesus. That's what it should do. That sounds to me like the Great Commission. Oh, you were dead, now you're alive. I, Jesus, brought you there, taught you for three years. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to go tell people about me now. You're going to teach and preach about me. You're going to teach and preach about salvation. You're going to baptize people in the name of my Father, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of me, Jesus. And then you're going to teach them all the things that I have commanded you. That's Matthew 28, 20. Teach them all the things that I have commanded you. It doesn't go like this. Come down to the front, high-five the preacher, say yes to four questions, get dunked in a mobile baptism pool, all right, and then do whatever you want. That's not what Matthew 28, 19, and 20 say. This is teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Being a Christian, being a disciple is this, that we obey Christ, that we live our life like Christ. Does it mean that we'll be perfect? No, it doesn't mean that we'll be perfect. Does it mean that we should strive to be? Absolutely. Why? Because that's what Jesus says to do. Be holy for I am holy. Be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect. That would be commands of Jesus Christ. That means that we should observe them. 
See where the logic comes into play. We can't dance around and play hopscotch with, or whatever game you would dance around in, all right? We can't do that as it pertains to the things of God, if we're Christians. It should stir us up to pray with a heart to intercede for people who are unwilling to open the first page of Scripture and see Christ. We should pray for the lost. It should also give us great hope that we have an assurance of our salvation written on the pages of a book that will never pass away. Do you know what the best-selling book in the history of the planet is? Uh, the Bible. <laughs> this is not going away, and I don't care how hard they persecute us, how many of us they kill, or how bad things get in the end times, the Word of God, the divine Logos, will never pass away. He won't go away. That will not be stolen from us because God Himself has promised it to us. This should also give us great hope, again, that we have assurance of faith. We can be sure of the faith that we have if we have the Son of God. He was, and He is God. He was in the beginning, and He was with God. He was, and is, God. Now I say those simple statements sometimes over and over and over again, it might sound crazy, but I have to drive those points home. I have to proclaim the truth, and I have to make sure that we're all on the same page, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is God. Now, it doesn't make sense grammatically there, but it's true. How can I prove that? Here's the purpose statement for the entire book of John and our new sermon series. This is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, which would be the signs of Jesus, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing, you may have life in his name. Hmm. That's it right there. It's the whole purpose of the book of John, so that we can actually believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we can have life in his name. There's no other way. There's no other path. There's no other light. There's no other religion. There's no other works-based salvation system that will actually save you. It's only through Christ. Christian, I pray that you'll believe more. That God may grow you and encourage you and strengthen you to continue to read his word and to pray, to fellowship, to engage others with the glorious truths that you are growing and you are learning in. Why? Because that's what it is to be a Christian. I want to encourage you as a Christian to grow in your, in your love of him and to seek him. To ask questions if you need clarification. Find someone who is, who is older in the faith than you, who is more wise in the faith than you, and ask questions. Write them down. Ask your pastor, ask a deacon, ask a deaconess, ask someone because if this is the most important thing that we could ever possibly get a hold of, we should want understanding of it. 
every once in a while we watch, um, we watch a show where these old men in the mountain go out and trap stuff, and they've got these giant traps sometimes that'll just smoke a wolverine, right? They're super powerful, conibear, whatever number trap they are. I don't know. I'm not a trapper. But I know this. I know that there is much power and there is much might and there is much to be feared and respected of a giant trap when it's 40 below outside. Because if you break your hand or you break your arm and it's 40 below, there's a good chance that you'll die in a couple hours. And so if I had just put on my trapper hat and my set of deerskin pants and wandered out into the wilderness with an old grizzled trapper who knew much of the things of trapping, and I said, you don't know much of what you're doing, and I grab one of those giant traps and I try and throw that thing up, there's a good chance that I'm going to hurt myself really badly. There's, this, there's the physical reality. Now let's paint the spiritual reality. I just punched into the things of Christ and I'm unwilling to ask for help though the power and the majesty and the splendor and the glory of Christ be great. I will not approach this with fear and trembling. I will approach this uncaringly. That's the same principle because I'm not going to stick my hand in one of those giant badger traps nor try and open that thing up to begin with to try and figure out how to set it. And if I don't know how to do it, great harm can be done. The same truth applies spiritually. The same exact truth. Hmm. My hope and my prayer with the start of this year is that our, our church, as we go home, as we break bread together in our own homes, with our own families, or with friends, or with relatives, whatever, that one of the primary things that we'll be talking about around the dinner table will be Christ. It will be what we've learned or read in the Scripture. It will be some new glorious truth that God has exposed to us that has caused us to grow in our affections towards Him. That we'd be a people who'd be excited about Christ. Now, understand this. We, we must grow. We must grow. We must continue. We must advance. We must be a people about our Father's business. Now, I, I want you to see how real this is because every one of you in here who's ever looked at the news in the past year understands that we live in desperate times. What's our spiritual commandment? Fight. Pick up your sword and fight. Pick up your shield and extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy and fight, spiritually speaking. Not with physical weapons, but with spiritual weapons. And if you stand there and you drop your sword and you drop your shield, if you're a Christian, you will soak up the flaming darts of the enemy with your body. And you will be an easy target. How foolish would that be? But as we study Christ and as he equips us with tools to defend ourselves and to fight offensively against the powers of darkness, how foolish would we be not to listen? Those who do not know God, repent of your sins and believe the Christ. Believe the word of God. Believe the Messiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. My prayer for you is that you will see the change in us, those of us who are Christians, 
that our faith won't be stagnant, that we won't be a people who just floats through Christianity, that you will see a growth of our love and our understanding and our want and our desire and our need for the things of Christ. And that perhaps through that, you will be greatly encouraged to to look to Christ, not to us, not to those of us who are Christians, but you will look to the Christ. That as we study Him specifically in what He's done in the book of John for the next many months, the, the change that you will see in the Christians in this room will spur you on to examine your own life and to look and see what Christ has done. My hope and my prayer is that God blesses every single person in this room. And everybody here already knows me. That doesn't mean with a Mercedes, a diamond ring, and a, a new house. That means spiritually. My prayer is that God blesses spiritually every single man, woman, and child in this room, in this sanctuary. That people would cling to Christ. If we're Christians, conditional, if we're Christians, that's what we should be about. May God bless you all. May you go in peace. May you be strengthened and encouraged and find hope in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you, Lord, um, that you've chosen to send your Son, Jesus Christ, that you've chosen to God, veil your glory and manifest your presence in Christ Jesus. Lord, that we would not be so overtaken by your glory that we couldn't even breathe, but that you would interact with us and condescend to us and speak to us, God, in ways that we would even be able to understand that we could see you walk out what Adam should have been. That we would see you walk out a kingdom like David should have done that we would see you draw your people out of bondage and out of slavery and fully trust God, unlike Moses, who drew your people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt and did not perfectly obey you. But when we look to the true Adam, the true Moses, and the true David, we see Christ. We see you. God, let us see more of you in the Old Testament and let us see so much more of you in the New Testament. God, grow us in an understanding of these things. Encourage us, uplift us, equip us. Uh, God, undergird us, strengthen us, um, sustain us because you and you alone are God and we need you and we love you and we praise you. Father, it's in your name we pray and in accordance with your will we ask. Amen.